Today's podcast is brought to you by QuiltWoman.com. QuiltWoman.com is your source for quilting and sewing patterns, offering over 10,000 items by over 270 designers to retail and wholesale customers. Wholesale customers enjoy no minimum order and free U.S. shipping with a $60 order. Use promo code ABBY, that's A-B-B-Y, to receive 10% off your first order. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 77 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about craft publishing with my guest, Amy Marson. Amy is the publisher of CNT Publishing. She has a strong background in sales and marketing and spent her early career working in retail management and merchandising. Amy's a member of the International Quilt Association and the Modern Quilt Guild, and is a recent graduate of the Contra Costa Leadership Council. When she's not leading CNT, you can find her practicing her love of crafts, especially quilting, sewing, and embroidery. Amy Marson, welcome. Thank you, Abby. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. We first met um, at Quilt Market in Houston um, and kind of connected there, and I thought, perfect. I would love to have Amy on the show to talk more about craft publishing. And so here we are finally, many months later, um, getting to that conversation. So do you want to talk a little bit about the history of CNT? I know CNT um, sort of came out of, as you said, it's a family-owned business, and it came out of um, people who owned a, a quilt shop in California. Is that right? Correct. So Carolee Hensley owns the Cottage in Lafayette, California, and she still does. It's still a vi- it's still an active store. Um, and so I think it, gosh, I'm hope I don't mess this up. I believe Roberta Horton wanted to publish a book on quilting and Carolee got some friends together and they decided to do it. And her husband, Tom, helped her with the business end of it. So C is Carolee and T is Tom and that's C&T Publishing. So about 25 years ago, so the company's been in business for 30, 33 years this year. And uh, Todd, finished college and he stepped in and started running it with his dad and his mom went back to the quilt store and then Tony came, um, their other son. And so Todd and Tony run the comp- um, are the owners of the company now. And they've been here. I think Todd's been here for 25 years and Tony's been here for 20 years. And then they hired me in, um, 2000. And then in 2002, I became the publisher. So I've been the publisher for 14 years. And over time, I've just taken over more and more. So I run the day to day business for both of them. And they're the and they own it. I so, see. Yeah, so it's been it's been in their family for 33 years. And um, the history of the company is, uh, it's a nice story. Yeah. And at a time when um certain major media conglomerates seem like they're buying up all of these um, family owned and smaller independent, uh, independently owned um, publishing houses and kind of merging into one big one. Um, It's nice to know that there is still a, there are still small ones out there that are still owned by the people or the children of the people who founded it. Yeah, it is nice. It's a really um, 
it's a really great thing. And, and there is a lot of consolidation going on. I mean, we saw quite a bit um, in 13 and 14 with what F&W has acquired. And, um, and we acquired Kansas City Star Quilts last year. And, uh, and that was big for us. That was a big acquisition. And the thing that we like about Kansas City Star Quilts is that um, we, you know, we're located on the West Coast in California in a very um, fast-paced, liberal area. And there's so much, I mean, the United States is such a massive country, and there are so many different things going on regionally that we feel like by acquiring Kansas City Star Quilts, that gives us um, a great perspective on the Midwest and what's trending there and what's exciting and what's interesting uh, and we, you know, we want to make sure we're not too um, too regional and too West Coast flavored because, you know, people have said that about us. And we want to make sure that we're publishing for everyone who loves quilting and that we're not overlooking um, a segment of our niche. We feel like Kansas City Star Quilts really helped us with that. And um, and we want CNT to be a home for everyone. We want every quilter and sewist to want to be a part of the CNT family. And um, CNT really specializes in quilting, but are, are you doing titles now that are expanding outside of that? Are you looking at garment sewing, for example? I mean, I think I see in local quilt shops, um, you know, looking at expanding out into carrying garment patterns and some of the garment substrates and fabric to kind of encourage a new customer, more customers, a different customer. So is that influencing publishing at all? It is. We've been doing some garment books for the past probably three years, um, just like one or two a season. Uh, We've done quite a few bag books that have done incredibly well. And we also have uh, books on hand embroidery that we've published with Kristen Brown and Judith Baker Montano. Um, So, uh, and we do, you know, fabric painting, fabric dyeing. So, yeah, we have sort of a variety. We've done some mixed media books that have done well for us. Um, So, and then I don't know if you've ever seen it, but Felt We Folk and then New Adventures. That kind of um, hand crafting book does incredibly well for us. Those little Felt We Folk are just beloved. And uh, those books do well for us. So, So we do, we Quilt books is our bread and butter, but we also do, we do a fair amount of um, sewist books as well, craft sewist books. Okay, so it is expanding out a little bit and um, and tapping into that different market. And I think you're right. I think bag books are a big are big right now. Um, yeah. yeah, for sure. And, and bag patterns are doing really well. So and that they they coalesce nicely with quilt uh, books and quilt shops because often they're using quilting cottons. Um, and so you know you can sell that plus the interfacing and all of the um, the hardware that it requires to make a bag. So they, that kind of works well for a quilt shop. Oh, it does. And I mean, uh, quilting fabric is so much fun for bags and you can make them and make another one and make another one. You know, it's just you can have so much fun with quilting fabric on on bags or small um, little small projects or hand sewing projects. And so I feel like it completely dovetails with the quilt shops and it gives the quilt shop something to teach that may not take as long as making a quilt. 
Yeah, I was just reading in Fab Shop News, which is the um, the trade magazine for quilt shops, for independent quilt retailers. Um, and I was reading in there about this sort of kind of customer that comes in who um, feels guilty that maybe she hasn't finished the um, last quilt project that she's got waiting for her at home and therefore can't buy more fabric. Like, it's like, oh, no, 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 I can't. You know, I've, I've already got something going. And so sort of trying to appeal to that customer to say, well, here's some other things we could offer you that won't make you feel bad <laughs> that you have your you know work in progress basket or whatever like sitting at home um and uh, anyway so bags maybe kind of fall into that range and books too yeah bags books um yeah those smaller projects really do fall into that um it's funny you mentioned fab shop um i released a book with them a year ago and then i did seven webinars for them for the quilt shops on um running a successful quilt shop. And so I know Lori and Fab Shop very well. Uh, that was that was a lot of fun to do. Yeah. So what are, I mean, give us a tip that, uh, you know, what are some of the things that you suggest for quilt shop owners who might be listening that help them to run a successful quilt shop today? And it's a challenging marketplace with online shopping and how easy it is for people to order online now. So, you know, what do you feel like quilt shops can do at this moment to sort of ensure success or, or, you know, get people in the door and buying things? Um, I think there's several things you can do. One of them is to, the better merchandised a shop, um, the more successful the shop is. And I think uh, I mentioned earlier, I had about uh, 10 experience before I got into publishing and I used to merchandise clothing stores for revenue per square foot. And so when I wrote this book for Fab Shop, I talked to them about merchandising so that they're maximizing their revenue per square foot and not just having their fabric displayed, but having, if you're selling a pattern, have a sample made, even if it's just the quilt top and it's not quilted or make a small version of it just to show people the fabric choices and then have the fabric there and the pattern there and maybe a notion or two there so that you are encouraging uh, your shopper to buy multiple items because a multiple item sale is a more profitable sale. Uh, So merchandising is important. Um, Classes going constantly is important and having a way for someone in the class to be able to go have a tab running in the shop to get what they need, having merchandise in the classroom to people to just pick up and use uh, encourages purchasing. And then um, really knowing your customer and having a staff that uh, their level of expertise is pretty high so that they can help their um, customer because Undoubtedly, when you go into a quilt store, yes, you need fabric, and chances are you need advice of some kind. And um, I've been helping out at Cotton Patch because um, the owner had a medical crisis. And so I went in with Todd, our owner, and was just helping him and getting some things squared away. And one of the things that I saw there, because I was there for quite a bit of time, is the number of questions people come in with. And that is something the quilt shop can do that no, that you can't do in online retail. Um, they can answer questions. They can look at all the fabric with you and look at the pattern and say, well, what about this? Or what about this? Or did you consider this bolt? Or 
um, you know, let me help you make sure you're getting the right amount of fabric or you have all the notions. They can suggestively sell and support that customer in a way that I just don't feel like you get online. Yeah, absolutely. And that experience, you know, that experience, that feeling and that expertise level is truly what makes a local store special. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think those stores, and we all know them where you go in and you know you're going to find that, are um, are amazing and, you know, are, are so valuable and so worth supporting. Um, and so I think that's that's great advice. But at the same time, also encouraging quilt shop owners to see, um, you know, see it as a business, truly as a business and look at, you know, merchandising and look at how much you're going to make per square foot and that kind of thing so that, um, so that you're also surviving financially, you know, because it's got to be both. And then it's great fun to go into the cotton patch and actually do it. So right. I've been having a lot of fun with that. Yeah, that's a neat, that's a neat um, experience. And I, I've talked to, to Carolee on the phone and um, a while back and, and just was like, I, I'd love to talk to you. And we had a really nice chat and she's, she's a neat person. So um, oh, yeah. yeah, that's great. Um, so I want to start by asking what drew you to craft publishing in particular. So when I first um, interviewed at CNT Publishing, I had come from uh, working in magazine publishing. And I walked in and I saw Ruth McDowell's um, uh, quilt that was paper pieced or yeah, freezer paper piece. And um, it was vegetables. And I started looking around the office and I saw all these quilts on the wall. And I thought if I could come to work and look at beautiful quilts and other things every day, then I would be doing pretty good. So that's what really drew me to CNT. Um, I've always I've sewn ever since I was a little girl, but to be able to combine my love of crafting and book publishing and do it about quilting just seemed like too good to be true. So that's why I got into it. Okay. And you said you were in magazine publishing before. Where were you coming from? So I worked for a family-owned business called BAM Media, and we published, uh, we were in the Bay Area, and we published a rock and roll magazine, a computer magazine, um, and then we did a car magazine, a home improvement magazine, which I started called Home Improvement and Design. So we had several magazines. The idea was to be like the Sunday paper in magazine format, Um, and then and then our computer magazine got sold and I got carved out with that purchase. So then I worked for another company, Prime Media. We got bought by a company that did apartment guides and home for sale guides. So it was a really different environment. Um, and then I stayed there for three years and then I came to CNT. I see. So you really, yeah, you really did kind of work your way up through, um, yeah, almost, and, and, but all of this almost on kind of like hobby or lifestyle kind of interests sort of related magazines, not really newsy. The computer one was fairly newsy because we got amazing. Our editor, Mary Eisenhart, got interviews with Steve Jobs. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, she got interviews with everybody. I actually got to meet him at a show because of her. I was walking the floor with her and he walked by and she's like, oh, Steve, I'd like you to meet Amy, our business manager. And so we just had incredible interviews so we the the computer one was very news oriented the rest of them were much more lifestyle and hobby and fun right right and do you feel like i mean craft publishing is very much a hobby based business and 
um, you know, I, I think that comes with a lot of really great things um, because you're, you know, helping people enjoy their leisure time, um, which I love. And I love that it can kind of come with like a, I don't know if it's like a stigma or it's just a little bit less taken less seriously at times. I don't know if you've experienced any yeah. of that. Yes. And the way that I look at it is um, with what we publish, we provide people an opportunity to channel their energy to help them sort of reconnect with themselves and reduce the stress in their life. And we give them tools and skill building for a lifetime. So to me, being a craft book publisher is sort of like being a self-help publisher. Um, You're giving people skills and tools for the rest of their lives, whether it's learning how to be patient or learning how to problem solve or learning how to do something, make a mistake, fail, and then do it again. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I think um, I definitely see crossover in, you know, a lot of people who start out craft blogging, for example, and then also start writing about life advice, you know, and sort of running your home and managing your time. And there's definitely some crossover there, but to think about crafting as a way to not just reduce stress, but also sort of learn about yourself um, and yeah, and help yourself to grow and, um, and gain confidence and all of that stuff. Yeah, and I also see it because I've noticed this for myself personally. The way that you approach making a quilt is a lot like how you approach life. You know, you can start with doing things the way other people have done them by following a pattern, or you can take that pattern and say, I want to improve on it, or I want to change the fabric, or I want to do it a different way. Um, and it also, you can approach it in terms of, how you organize things. You know, I'm, I'm a really, I love organizing. And so I created these systems for myself so that I can sit down and sew at any time and just have something there and ready to go. So if I want to sew for five minutes or five hours, it's all ready. Um, and the other part of it is doing something handmade, even sewing at the sewing machine, in my opinion, is handmade. And then giving it to someone, it's precious. And I feel like most of what I do, I do for us. You know, I make my siblings quilts or my nieces and nephews or um, grandnieces and nephews. So I feel like quilting is a way to share your love with someone else. I want to take a moment now to talk with our sponsor at quiltwoman.com. I'm Nancy Dill and my business is quiltwoman.com. And what does quiltwoman sell? Well, quiltwoman.com has a, a wide variety of, of styles of patterns because we represent uh, over 270 independent designers. Whether they're wholesale customer or retail customer can get a lot um, in all in one location. We have a lot of services for designers that, that people might, might not be aware of. Um, we, we, help with, we help with graphic design and help help new designers get started and a lot of, a lot of other things like that. Okay. So if a designer wanted to get in touch with you and sort of see whether there might be a good partnership there, um, how should they do that? Well, we, we welcome that. And on our website, there is a tab at the top that says info for designers. That would be the best place for them to start. And then they would, after reading that, just send me an email at info at quiltwoman.com and um, we can go from there. How long have you owned the company? 
I have owned the company since January of 2008. Quilt Woman is almost like a distributor, right? Quilt Woman is a distributor. Um, we're a unique distributor because in addition to selling uh, to quilt shops and retail and downloadable patterns, we also sell patterns to all the other distributors in the country. So it helps the, especially the newer designers to get into the the bigger distributors that aren't able to to buy you know one or two patterns from thousands of different designers. It wouldn't wouldn't be cost effective. We have some exciting new things. Uh, they're going to be coming up. We're going to be having um, subscription boxes that we're going to be working on for the fall, and we're going to be also doing um, some new block of the month programs. That'll be coming up. There's going to be a free block of the month coming this fall. Thank you, Quilt Woman. And now back to my conversation with Amy. So you've been at CNT for a really long time. You've been there. When did you first start? I started in uh, June of 2000. So I've been here 16 years. Wow. That is a really long time. In June of 2000 to 2016, we're in July of 2016 right now. So you've seen huge, huge changes in the way that publishing overall works and the way craft publishing in particular works. And um, I know that change is a topic that you're especially passionate about and helping businesses sort of guide through change. Um, So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the changes that you've seen in your tenure at CNT. Sure. The main things that I've seen um, would be sort of the overall paradigm shift in publishing and um, the desire for new, and uh, just how fast the cycle goes. So, for example, um, when I first started at CNT, there was very little online sales. So, most everybody bought their books at quilt shops or bookstores, or at like a chain like a Joann's or um, a Hobby Lobby. When online sales really started to pick up, um, people were able to get recommendations from other people just by uh, going online. So going on Amazon or searching out different um, ideas and then seeing what was available. So the online book sales through Amazon really changed how we sold and who we sold to. And the ability for people to give reviews uh, became a whole new marketing tool in book publishing. A few years after that, we started seeing the sales of used books, which really had an impact on our backlist. So instead of someone buying a new backlist book, they could buy a used book on Amazon quite a bit cheaper. Then we started seeing um, people with blogs and creating our own website. And our we'd had a website in 2000. It was not very robust. And so I think in the 16 years I've been here, we've done four web redesigns for our websites where we've gone to new companies, new models, uh, new ways of interacting with our customer. Google Books, that was huge. That created the look inside feature, which was great. You know, there's an upside and a downside to everything. We had to deal with a lot of pushback when uh, the look inside and Amazon really became a force to be reckoned with, with our shops and our distributors and our chains and our authors. So that was a huge uh, learning shift. So lots of different stuff. And we also, um, we launched Stash Books in 2009 with the help of Suzanne Woods, who was a fabulous acquisitions editor and now has her own company, publishing company. So those are some of the things that I've seen in my tenure. 
I think Stash Books was really sort of, um, it was, it's an effort to appeal to kind of a younger audience. You know, CNT, I think, is really known for um, for their for quilting titles and for um, and not not necessarily like an older audience, but maybe a more established quilter. And Stash is maybe appealing to a younger audience. That's my impression. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But talk a little bit about Stash and sort of what the intention was behind it and what kinds of books Stash publishes. So when we launched Stash Books, uh, the intention was to appeal to the more modern quilter or sewist. Um, with the with the CNT imprint, we did traditional books and art quilting books, and our demographic was probably in the fifty plus age range. The stash books we were targeting people in the modern quilt guild and those uh, young moms who had started sewing, had created blogs, and were looking for content that would really inspire them, not just with the beautiful fabric and the beautiful quilts. But with that, uh, with the photography that we pioneered in the stash books, that aspirational lifestyle photography where you could sit down and look at the beautiful set shots and the way that the books were laid out, they were airy, they were light, and it gave people just a completely different sense when they opened those books. So that's, so they were definitely targeted towards the younger modern quilter and craft sewist. Okay. And then Fun Stitch Studio is kind of the children's, you know, aimed at a more of a children's project kind of market. In a lot of ways, Fun Stitch Studio, it's targeted at those same young moms who want to figure out a way to share their love of craft with kids. The books have been designed to be done by the child exclusively. And so for most of them, the kids should be eight or up. Um, and the way that the instructions are written, the way that the books are laid out, it's de- definitely geared toward a generation that was born with an iPhone or an iPad in their hand. It has uh, lots and lots going on on one page. I see. So there will be the step-by-step photos, some tips, a cute photo, some line drawings. I mean, the pages are packed and they're busy. And that's what we've discovered kids liked. They wanted the book to feel as visually stimulating as almost like a, a, a computer game. So, um, so if an author decides to go ahead and work with CNT on their new book, and, and we're really talking about a new author here, um, what is, first of all, what is the average print run for like a new author's craft book? So um, it's hard to say what an average print run is these days, and I'll give you a couple reasons. Um, What we have started doing is we do a first printing overseas, and then we do our subsequent printings here in the U.S. And so we will print a fairly small first printing, say somewhere between four and eight thousand and then we will go back and reprint in the states so because we can reprint so quickly um and we do that because as a manufacturer in the u.s you have to write off your costs over the life of the first print run so it makes sense to print a small amount the first time and then go back for a reprint i see because it allows you to write off your expenses uh, versus say that you printed 10,000 copies and you spent um, 
50,000 making the book, you can only write off $5 every time you sell a book. Okay. All right. So because you have that ability in the U.S., and how come you don't print them in the U.S. right off the bat? Is that because it's just cheaper to get the larger print run done overseas? Um, it's about 30% more to print in the U.S. Okay. Okay. So that makes sense. So, I mean, I know with, um, I've written a few craft books and I know with um, some of mine, the average print run might be something like 7,000 copies or something like that for the first go round. And I'm not sure if that's sort of normal or, um, but I, I, I'm assuming it's somewhere in there. Yeah. And as you know, the industry is changing so rapidly that um, I'm typically seeing print runs that are lower than that. And I've talked to, I have a pretty good relationship with the other publishers in our industry and outside of our industry. And most of them are printing fewer the first time and doing what we're doing. So I I think pretty consistent industry-wide in publishing. Okay. And then is, is there always an ebook with CNT? Because I know that that's another question that new authors should really think about. I mean, um, with my first book, there was an ebook, no question. And, um, and now even that that book is out of print, there's still the ebook um, available. Whereas with my second book, the um, publisher is owned by Barnes and Noble. And as a result, because they couldn't compete with the Kindle, they actually don't do ebooks for their craft books. And I honestly forgot to sort of look into that. And so late in the process, I was like, oh, what about the ebook? And they're like, yeah, there's no ebook. And I was really disappointed. And so um, anyway, I, I now sort of taught, when I talk to people who are in the process of thinking about, you know, signing a book deal, I always ask them, you know, make sure you look at, you know, ebook rights, ebook royalties, are, are there gonna, is there gonna be an ebook? So, uh, so what is the case with CNT? So every book we publish has an ebook that comes out simultaneously. And um, our ebook sales, they probably account for maybe anywhere, depending on the book, 10 to 30% of the overall unit sales. Um, what we have found is there are obviously some books that are much better suited to being an ebook, like we have one called Organizing Solutions. That obviously is really well suited to be an ebook, um, but Elizabeth Hartman's Practical Guide to Patchwork, fabulous ebook as well. So we find that the books that are a little more referency tend to be ebooks, and the books that have you know beautiful set shot photography um, and more of an aspirational feel, they may not be, they won't sell as much as a reference book uh, as an ebook. But all of our um, Print books are ebooks, and we sell them in a couple different formats. Um, we sell them as PDFs on our site, and then as you can also get a Mobi file or an EPUB file. And we also sell them um, through the Apple Store, through iBooks, and obviously on Amazon for the Kindle. And those books have all the um, the Mobi and the EPUB file have all the uh, design stripped out, so. They're very much words, picture, words, picture, words, picture, sort of in a, a single file order. So they're not as pretty as the rest of as our books, but um, people love them. Okay. And I think every book should be an ebook. I think it's, I think it sort of does a disservice to the consumer to not offer ebooks for people who like to consume content that way. 
Yeah. And it's one more revenue stream that if it's just not going to happen, you know, you're cutting off the opportunity for that, you know, revenue stream in the future. So, um, so like I said, that was a little bit disappointing to me. And, um, (laughs) how long before a book typically goes out of print at CNT? Gosh, I don't know. I, I've been here for 16 years and I don't know that there is a typical, I would say some books, go out and they do really well their first three months and then they stop selling and they might only last a year and other books uh we have tradition with a twist that has was published i think in the late 80s maybe early 90s and it's still in print and it still sells well okay so it's it's hard to say but so average, I would say, you know, we want a book that sells three to five years is what I would say to you. Okay. I, I think that's helpful for people to know just like on average how, how it looks, you know, like right. in the marketplace. Um, and then let's talk a little bit. Um, first, I think about, uh, well, I want to talk about marketing and, and first from the perspective of the author. So when an, a person who has an idea for a book perhaps or um, thinks they might have an idea for a book um, – and, and putting together a, a query, uh, following the guidelines on the on the CNT website, um, and getting ready to submit it. How important is their platform? And specifically, what are you looking for, um, you know, as a platform from the author? So there's a few things that we do, and we actually include. We have a marketing page addendum in our contract that the author has to identify what they will do as part of the process of marketing the book, just so that everyone has a clear set of expectations going into it. Um, So there's a couple of things we look for. We really like a robust uh, social media platform. And what we look for is someone who either has a fairly big blog following or they can have an email list following or, uh, Yahoo group following, um, just that they have, they have a very loyal fan base. We would want to see that and we would want to see numbers and we actually would go to their blog and check their numbers or ask them, you know, to give us their email list numbers. The other thing is that they are, uh, active on either Instagram or Facebook or Pinterest. Uh, we like to see that. And then the last thing that we have actually circled all the way back to um, from when I first started is that teachers who are out there actively teaching um, sell more books. They are at classes. They're selling their books at those classes. And they are out there um, making a name for themselves and creating excitement around what they're doing. And they sell more books, even even through our distributors, those authors that are out there traveling and teaching sell more books through our core channel. Yeah, I think it's interesting how that has, as you said, come full circle. Because I imagine back in maybe the 80s or even the early 90s before there was any sort of blogging or social media, that was really the main way that you know a, a designer could make a name for themselves would be to travel first maybe locally and regionally and then nationally and teach, you know, their particular technique or style. Um, and then maybe it shifted some, but 
you know, now in the day of social media, I know if I see a picture of, um, you know, one of the quilt designers that I really admire teaching at some retreat or, you know, special shop, um, and I'm like, oh, wow, you know, those eight people who took that class were so lucky. And then later, if they publish a book, I'm more inclined to want it because I feel like, oh, I'll never get to actually go to her class. But now I can have a piece of that at home. Right. And and we have some teachers who teach maybe 30 days a year. And then we have other teachers who teach between 150 and 180 days a year. That's amazing and exhausting. <laughs> it is amazing and exhausting. I don't honestly, I don't know how they do it, but I think that they thrive on it. Um, and then we also have teachers or authors who teach online. So whether it's for Creative Bug or for Craftsy uh, or videos that they're doing for free on their website or videos that they're doing on their website and charging for um, they're they're getting out there as well. And I think that that is very important. I, I don't know that it's equally as important because it doesn't give them the opportunity to sell their books um, themselves and generate revenue. But I feel like that business model is changing so quickly that there will come a time where someone could teach an online class, tell people a print book is a requirement. They can buy it from the author or wherever they get it. They're able to show they have the book and then they take the class online. I mean, they see that as a business model that's coming fairly quickly. Interesting. And when you have authors who have gone in the reverse direction, who have published a, a book with CNT and and are now going to be teaching on one of the major platforms such as Craftsy, how does that work as far as like a licensing situation or, um, you know, how like if, if you're going to be using some of the, the patterns that are in the book um, or some of the sample quilts that the author has made for the book and then teaching them in the class, I'm assuming there's got to be some sort of relationship there between Craftsy and the publishing house. There is. And uh, at first it was a little tough um, because Craftsy started doing all these classes with our authors uh, because they found them because of their books. And then in our contract, we license the video content for a book because they're teaching the same techniques they're using the same how-to sets of, you know, the way they do it. So we did license with Craftsy um, for authors who became instructors on Craftsy. We have some authors that are teaching, but it's not licensed content. So they're doing more project-based teaching instead of technique-based teaching. And we are still negotiating with Craftsy on another way to set up the arrangement so that it's, it's easy to manage, it's easy to monitor, um, and it's a win-win for all parties involved, the instructor, CNT, and Craftsy. Right. I think that's interesting. And that, as we're talking about, you know, these new, we're pioneering uh, new ways of distributing media and making these new sorts of legal arrangements as part of that um, and figuring it out. I mean, I really, I'm not really sure there is, you know, uh, a grand plan. I think it's more like, okay, here we are. Here's how people want to consume uh, and learn this kind of how-to content. And we need to figure out a way to make that happen that also works for all three of these businesses. It, 100%. It's messy. And uh, 
our industry, uh, publishing is being disrupted in so many different ways that it requires us to figure out how to leverage content in as many ways as possible to generate income for the author and for the publishing house. Um, and it it's funny because I sort of think about it sort of like how fa- fabric companies are where they'll make a new line of fabric and that fabric goes out and it sells really well and eventually it stops selling. But the fabric company or the designers still own those designs. So what else do you do with them? So when you're thinking of book publishing, we've got all this content. So what else do we do with it? You know, it doesn't make sense for it to just sit there and not be used. So we're constantly trying to figure out how to leverage that content in different ways. Um, And I think you're, you know, one example where we're doing a series of books called make and they're all project based and they're really, um, they're really affordable. There's a high value to price uh, ratio. So they're very, a good value book and you've got one of your projects in it. um, And that's a way we leverage content to sell it in another format and the author gets compensated for that. Right. So this was a project that I had contributed to one of the CNT um, collaborative books uh, several years back. Um, And I just got a notice in the mail saying, you know, could we have permission to reprint that same project in this new make series and there'll be additional compensation, but no additional work on my part for it to be repackaged. Packaged, and of course, I was happy to do it. Um, right. But as a way to sort of repackage that content. And I think, you know, it's something also that authors should look at in their contracts as far as, you know, if you if you are going to work with this publishing company and they're going to have the rights to your intellectual property and to repackage it and resell it, what is that going to mean for you? Um, because I know that there's another publisher that I've spoken with in the past they will take apart um, a book and sell the individual patterns as PDFs on Etsy even before the book is actually uh, on the market. Um, and so, and you know, that I found the clause in the contract that allows that to happen. Um, and I think a lot of the authors who worked with that publishing house were actually really surprised and didn't even know that their patterns had been taken apart and put on Etsy as PDFs um, before their book was released until I told them. <laughs> so, um, so, but you know, it was completely kosher because it was part of something that they had signed. So it's not for, you know, it's not necessarily negative or positive. It's just one of those things where you need to know how, what, what the possibilities are, um, for repackaging. A hundred percent for sure. Um, it's really important, uh, to read the contract and have an understanding of the licensing portion of it. To me, that's the most important part of it is what are the expectations for the author and what is the publishing and merchandising license allowing the publisher to do? Okay, that's great advice. And I want to talk about marketing too. So um, one of the things that I'm always impressed with when I um, either go to Quilt Market or when I watch Quilt Market on social media, which is most likely what I do, um, most markets I'm home uh, following along on Instagram, which I think lots of us are. Mm-hmm. And I always see in the CNT booth all these new CNT authors, either they are doing signings in the booth or they're presenting schoolhouses. And um, and I always have like a little twang of jealousy because uh, my second book, which is the book, uh, one of the books, well, okay, I'm really 
really proud of the second book. But my publisher, I did ask. I said, hey, could we go to the trade show and maybe I could do something? And and they said, um, no, we don't go to the we don't go to quilt market. Um, and I was like, oh, again, should have asked about that. <laughs> Um, so tell me a little bit about, um, you know, your new authors and the marketing plans that you have for them. I know it's a partnership, um, and they need to do things as well, but what, what do you have for them as far as marketing? So there's a few things we do. Um, I'm a big believer in over communication. So our, uh, Lynn Merrill, my, um, publicity manager will host, uh, a new author webinar, where she lets new authors know what to expect. And she does this every three months. So if your book's coming out, you are welcome to watch it six months in advance or three months in advance. And we usually have a guest author who will talk about their experiences in publishing and how they market. And then we also do a webinar before each quilt market to let authors know what the opportunities are at quilt market uh, how we can help and support them in uh, terms of introducing them to distributors or other companies. So we try to be a bridge between um, the author and all the industry contacts that CNT has collectively because we have so many. I mean, we know everybody in the industry pretty much. So if an author wants an introduction, we help them with that. Then at the show, uh, prior to the show, we will schedule our authors in our booth for signings, in our distributors booth for signings, in manufacturers booth for signings, if there's a good partnership. Um, and we also do demos in our booth. So we're doing signings and demos now. And then we also do schoolhouse, uh, where we are doing schoolhouses. We pioneered it in spring and we'll be doing it again in the fall where one author doesn't have to do a whole schoolhouse by themselves. They can do it with two other authors. So it's not so scary and they can sort of play off each other and make it a little more event-like rather than just a presentation. And the authors really enjoyed doing it last time. Um, I did one with Alex Anderson and it was like, somebody said it was like the Mutt and Jeff show that we should go on to <laughs> That's great. Because we've known each other for so long and we were teasing each other and joking and, you know, and just trying to shake it up a little bit. So we do a lot of quilt market. We also typically host Fabric 2.0. We're one of the sponsors. Um, so we do a lot for our authors at Quilt Market in terms of marketing. Right. And that breeds a certain kind of... Um of like a, a respect or a reverence or like a partnership that the quilt shops feel toward CNT as a, a publishing house. And so perhaps I'm not sure, but my hunch would be that they would feel more inclined to purchase the new books because they just feel like a warm welcome. In other words, they feel like they are, are working together with you. I feel that that's true. And I feel like um, having the authors in our booth allows the shops to connect with the authors and maybe see a teaching opportunity or, gosh, I'm trying to remember which quote market I was at, but one of the authors came up to me and had told me um, the people from Road to California had come by when she was, I think they'd been in her schoolhouse and then they came for her book signing and they asked her to teach there. Right. So for us, that's why we do everything that we do at Quilt Market is to foster uh, relationships and the ability to partner and be discovered. 
Right. And I think that that sense of discovery, that's a great word. So um, from the author's perspective, you know, I think a book is still a very strong marketing tool, marketing piece to get your name out there, to um, get known in the industry, to have this very sort of fancy business card sort of portfolio that you can shop around and present and teach with, et cetera. Um, and it opens up new doors. It lends you a sense of legitimacy. I don't think any of those things are going away. But I do think that sometimes people confuse that with actually uh, a money-making endeavor, whether writing, you know, writing a book is actually a money-making endeavor. And so you know, in my experience, um, for the amount of work that it was um, and the amount of money that you make, it's not always really worth it. And if you're thinking on a dollars per hour sort of situation. Um, so I don't know if you can tell us, but on average, how how much do you feel like a, a CNT author can expect to make, like a new author could expect to make overall from a book? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if that I can give you a dollar amount. Um, hmm. That's a, it's a really hard question because I've had some authors who make uh, $3,000 and I've had authors who've made $100,000. And it is so hard to say because if the book doesn't resonate, then you're going to be in the 3000 category. If the book does resonate, then you could be in the $20,000 category. Um, I can't really tell you what an average is. I, if I did some research, I could probably tell you, but it, there are so many criteria because it depends on imprint and um, so many different things. Right. Okay. I mean, I think that that's fair. Um, and it's certainly true. I mean, I think if you, if you, we've all seen those books that just become absolute huge smash successes and it seems like everyone has a copy. Um, and obviously that book is doing better than some of the ones that sort of come and go. Um, so it's hard to say overall, but, um, but perhaps those, those, uh, hundred thousand dollar titles are outliers. I would, I would imagine. Yes, they are. And, um, the other way to look at it is an author, so when someone makes a book, it's really important that they have a clear set of expectations for what they hope to get out of the book. So there's the revenue from their royalties. There's, like you said, a very wonderful business card. So it's sort of their street cred that they are, uh, they are who they say they are. And they've got, um, this, book that they've created that is technically correct, that a publisher thought was worth publishing. So that gives them some credibility. And also when we were talking about authors traveling and teaching, um, if an author travels and teaches, they can make 50% on their books. So if their book is $24.95 and they buy it for Twelve fifty from the publisher, and they sell it for twenty four ninety five. They've made their royalty, and they've made twelve fifty on the book. Right, and I've so, done that many times, and it's it's definitely worth doing. And it's the same too if you 
order the books and sell them in your online shop too. I mean, it, there's definitely um, a, a pro of doing that. And if you want, if you're not a uh, prospective author, but you just want to support prospective authors or authors that you know about, um, consider buying the book from them in person or buying it from their online shop. Because just keep in mind that they are going to be getting not only the royalty for that book, but also that, that particular copy, but also um, they're going to be able to keep half of the, the retail price, which um, is significantly more than the royalty. It is. And I feel that um, like Becky Goldsmith, she has a wonderful website for piece, piece of cake designs and she does good business on it. Um, and it's a great business model for her. And she puts up lots of free video tutorials and then she sells supplies around the hand applique that um, she and Linda are so passionate about and fabrics that she feels are good for her applique. And sometimes she kits up her pattern packs that she does with CNT. So she's figured out a way to create a revenue stream around what she does. And she still is out there traveling and teaching while she's got this website with this revenue stream going. And it's, it's a smart business model. It, you know, it's a way to make revenue doing many different things about what you're passionate about. Right. So you're wondering, does CNT do advances regularly? And the answer is um, not as much as we used to. Uh, years and years ago, when we didn't do all the photography in-house, we would give authors an advance to pay for photography. But then we brought the photography in-house. And so we stopped paying those kinds of advances. Um, we also probably I'm thinking four years ago, three or four years ago, we paid some pretty steep advances on books that did not resonate in the marketplace and never got even close to earning back their advances. And so we, um, I made a decision to pull back on advances quite significantly. So um, Roxanne has a pretty low advance budget now. Um, and I approve all advances and I'm pretty rigorous about not doing advances anymore unless unless the author really has a compelling reason for needing the advance. I try not to do advances anymore. And um, most of the publishers that are like us that are um, family owned businesses or employee owned businesses tend not to do advances as much as the larger corporations do. I see. And so um, do you feel like that puts a strain on authors who are spending a long period of time working on the book um, and you know, does it limit sort of who can write a book? Um, I haven't, I haven't seen that yet. We have lost a couple books, but I've not felt like those books that we lost were, um, you know, devastating to our organization that, you know, Oh, if we'd had those, it would have been amazing. You know, book publishing is such a speculative business. It's like making a movie you put all the time and energy into it and then you market it and you hope that it sells. And so when you're, when you're in an industry that's speculative, I feel like you have to really be cautious and polish your crystal ball and make the best business investments you can. So you got to be careful. Right. It is speculative because you aren't sure you're investing quite a bit of money in printing, you know, and creating the book, printing the book and bringing the book to market. And you just aren't sure how well it will sell. Um, and so by giving an author in advance, you're also investing in that too. Like you're using some of the budget that way. Um, but it is, I think, difficult for authors to 
you know, spend, let's say eight months working on a book when they can't, you know, necessarily invest in their business during that time as much as they could have. Um, and so, you know, it, it kind of goes both ways. It, it's, it's a struggle either way. It is. And I, I definitely see both sides of it. I guess one of the ways that I look at it is um, most of the authors we work with, some of them have um, companies like what you do. You sell patterns online. You've got a blog. You're able to monetize it. Um, and so they've got um, multiple revenue streams and the book will be just one of them. And so what we really tell authors is take you pick a package date that will work for you based on your schedule. Um, we rarely ask an author to drop everything and crank out a book really fast because we know that's not a good business model for us or the author. Um, so we really try to be sensitive to the different ways the authors make money and make what we do fit within their um, schedule. Right. Okay. Let's go ahead and talk about some things that you're recommending that you're enjoying right now. And um, one of them is you're doing some quilt as you go projects and, um, and you're using okay. something called make it simpler, fusible interfacing. Yeah. I started working on a quilt for my niece and she brought me a, it was a, a recycled sari fabric jacket that was already quilted. And she says, I want to make a quilt out of this. And I'm like, well, honey, it's already quilted. She's like, yeah, I know. I'm like, okay. So she brought a bunch of fabric, some fabric that was old of hers. We found some, an old dress of my mom's um, clothes of hers. So I had cottons, rayons, silks, this recycled sari fabric, pillows that we recycled, the covers on. And so I did a quilt as you go. And I was so we made all these 14 inch blocks that we cut down to 12 inches. And I was like, I could not figure how to attach them. And someone here said, use the make it simpler fusible interfacing. And so I ironed all the blocks together. I laid them out on the floor and then picked them up one by one and ironed them together. And it like was a game changer. And I, it just blew me away. Cause I knew you could make bat, you could attach batting scraps of batting together to make a big piece of batting. But being able to do this quilt as you go really changed how I think I might make quilts in the future. As you go was so much fun. That's great. And I, I have a friend, um, Wendy Gratz, and um, actually she has a book out with Stash. Yeah. And um, that's one of the things that she loves doing now is um, quilt as you go and quilt as you go um, videos and things to sort of show people how to do that. Um, and yeah. I know she just absolutely loves it. You will do things with machine quilting that you wouldn't consider trying on a big quilt. Right. Because it's just a small block that you can just do it here and not commit to doing it everywhere. Right. And then if you don't like it, it's just one block. Right. Um, okay. And you, you're also enjoying some side threading needles from Becky at Piece of Cake Designs. Yes. So um, I don't know about you, but as I've gotten older, I, it's harder and harder for me to thread a needle, even with my glasses on, my reading glasses. I like to sew in the car uh, when I'm not driving, of course. Um, and so it makes it just easier to thread the needle and to have it all there with me ready to go. And then I don't have to worry about pre-threading a bunch of needles and the thread getting all tangled. So yeah. I've seen them before. I did. I always wondered if they like snag the fabric though, because there's like that opening. Have you found that to be a problem at all? Nope. Wow. So it's just the, like the way that it's angled or something, it just goes yeah. right through. Yeah, it's it sort of reminds me of I think they're called carabiners. You know those hooks that they use in mountain. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Like a carabiner. That's how I think of it. Okay. So it's really, yeah, it really closes over. So you don't have to worry about that. Yeah. It's so close that, and you know, the thread's so thin, it just pops in. So yeah, I think it's kind of brilliant. Yeah. It's kind of brilliant for those of us who it gets harder and harder to thread a needle. So, well, yeah. okay. And you have one more, which is an Instagrammer, um, Judith Baker Montano, um, whose Instagram photos you're really enjoying. I am. I, I haven't asked her yet. She's one of our authors and I follow her on Instagram. Um, and she does crazy quilting and just the most breathtaking embroidery. She's the one who introduced me to embroidery and made me really fall in love with it. Um, but she is using some sort of a camera with a macro lens, and she is getting these flower photographs that are almost look like they were done with a microscope in a way. I mean, she's using some sort of a macro lens, and I need to find out what it is so that I can do it. But she's just been taking flower photography, which I have a weakness for, and it's just beautiful. And I've been so enjoying – I mean, I love Instagram, and I'm on it every day, um, but her photos really – have been inspiring me. And are you taking photos for Instagram too? Do you have like your own account? Are you working on, do you work at all on the, on the CNT account or how does I, that work? I do both. I work on the CNT account when I am at shows. Um, I go around and take pictures. Um, there's a couple of us that do that. And then I also, I have my own Instagram account that I use um, for myself personally. Um, my son, when he was, 14 got me using Instagram and I'm actually the one who brought it to CNT. I said, Hey, the kids are using this really cool program. We should check it out. And, uh, and so we started using Instagram. And so, yeah, I definitely use Instagram and I love it. And I try not to do it all the time, but, um, I minored in photography in college. So I have a love of photography that goes way back. And what did you major in? Um, I designed my own major called organizational communications. Wow. And so it was um, mass communication, uh, public speaking, and then um, psychology and business. Wow. Yeah. And then you like sort of put that all to use, I feel like. It is what I do. Yeah, it is. And I, I, yeah. And it actually, they have that at colleges now as a major. Uh Uh-huh. So you're pioneering your own major that's now... Yeah. And then I minored in photography and um, I was lucky enough just to have great photography teachers and learn how to develop photos and do all that yourself. So, um, yeah. That's so funny. I feel like so many of us major in something in college that we then, although maybe, you know, enjoyed at that time or maybe learned how to read and learned how to write and how to think and all those great skills, but then don't actually use in day-to-day life. But you're, you're somebody who does use your college major in, in your actual job. I do. I do. And I'm, I'm also a person who, um, I am in a mode of inquiry every moment of every day. I'm always learning something new and, um, and I love it. That's I, I think, great. Yeah. I think I'd get bored otherwise. And I think people here know that about me. It's I'm constantly looking to do something new and different. That's great. And that's a great note to end on. So Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh She Naps podcast. It was really great talking with you. Thank you, Abby. It was a lot of fun. And you've been listening to the Walsh She Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. You can visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. 
Today's episode was brought to you by quiltwoman.com. Sign up for their weekly email newsletter at quiltwoman.com to receive a free downloadable pattern and be the first to hear about new patterns, block of the months, and more. Use the promo code ABBY, that's A-B-B-Y, to receive 10% off your first order. Thank you, Quiltwoman. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I will see you next time.